Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Well, hello, my name's Steph. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, in case um, you're not familiar with the series that we're doing, we're working through a series called Good King, Bad King, where we're looking at the kings of Judah. And um, today we get to Zedekiah, the last king. Um, or is he? <laughs> um, but uh, before, well, before we before we read the passage, I want to just take you through a, a, through a few things just to get us ready. The first thing is just to read about. And we're about to sort of be under the word of God in terms of the, the, the proclaimed scripture. Um, it says in the Book of Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul of soul and of spirit of joint and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account they're fearful words they're fearful they're, they're, they're words that are actually supposed to make you tremble if you're complacent if you're kind of playing around with spiritual things and think it's fine, no one, no one sees, no one knows. These words are supposed to make you tremble. That's what they're there for. If you're sincerely trying to follow Christ, but very, very aware of your weakness in it, then the next bit is for you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Few. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? Oh, thank you, Lord. He is merciful. He is he's holy and he's merciful. And, that's, and that's a, these are amazing truths that we need to live in both of those. And if you do away with one or the other, you end up in the wrong place. He's holy and he's merciful. And we're looking at the stories of these, these kings. And um, after Solomon, we had Rehoboam. Under his rule, the kingdom split in two. Ten tribes to the north. Two tribes to the south. The tribes to the north are referred to from then on as Israel. The tribes to the south as Judah. Israel did not have one good king. It's bad king, bad king. <laughs> Judah's good king, bad king. Israel's bad king, bad king. And around 721 BC, the northern nation was invaded by the Assyrians and completely overrun. And one of the Assyrians, their policies when they would invade a nation is that they would deliberately displace people to kind of dilute the kind of cultural sense of cultural identity. And they would deliberately, so what in the nations they would go to, they would displace and put people here and people there. And then inevitably over time, people from these different cultures would intermarry. And what it would do, it would, it would break down the kind of sense of cultural distinction that, that would be necessary to be able to revolt against the Assyrians. So everything becomes kind of mixed and it's easier for them to rule. The Assyrians got into Judah and they got just outside Jerusalem. And if any of you are familiar with the story of Hezekiah, 
when you've got King Sennacherib and, and they're all surrounding, surrounding Jerusalem, making these great boasts. And King Sennacherib makes this great boast, you know, about, about um, all, of the, all of the nations that he's defeated. But then he takes a wrong step. And he begins to talk about the gods that he has defeated. And he says, what makes you think that your God is going to be any different? At that point, everyone winces and steps back. Because, of course, the gods of the other nations are man-made gods. They are the product of the imagination of a person. Whereas this God is the God of heaven and of earth, and we are the product of his imagination. So it's a completely different dynamic. So he begins to boast against his God, and then that night... The angel of the Lord goes out and destroys 185,000 Assyrians and they head back to Assyria with their head between their tail. And you can find, you can find evidence of this in the British Museum. Okay. This, is, this is what happened. This is what happened. Across the line. Judah was protected. But the problem was, was that they can, the kings continued in their, in their corruption. And dragging the nation into all kinds of stuff we looked at last week. If you want to know what they were into, listen to last week's sermon. Reams and reams and reams of terrible things. And in the end, God says, you're going to be overthrown as well. But then you'll get a good king. And because the king was repentant and contrite, God was like, okay, we're going to hold it off for now because of you. We're going to wait until a further time. And then you get a bad king. And again, God's long suffering, his patience pushed to the limit. Then you get a good king. God says, okay, we're going to hold off. And in it, you see, you see the holiness of God, but you see the patience of God. And you're introduced to this concept, which we're, we're probably not familiar, very familiar with. But I'm going to read to you from very, very early scripture, Genesis 15, when God is promising Abraham the, 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 the land and, and, and this covenant that he makes with Abraham. And there's this really unusual phrase where he says this. To Abraham, he's, he's talking about, he's, prof, he's predicting there that, that Abraham's descendants will go and they will be under the rule of Egypt for, for centuries. He, all of that is predicted here. And then he says this, he says, um, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And he says this, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What a strange phrase. Now, the Amorites were the people that currently were living in what, is what we call the promised land. That's where they were living. But God says their iniquity is not complete. What does that mean? It meant that they were living in the most terrible way. But because of God's patience and his long suffering, he's not quick to anger. He's not quick to judge. But because of his holiness, he will do it. But because of his patience, he will hold off as long as he can. And so he says to Abraham, he says, there's, a, there's, a whole, there's a whole program at work here. And the people in this land, they are, they, in fact, they're into such despicable things. The language used to describe them when they're finally thrown out, it says this, that the land itself spewed them out. The land was like, we can't even deal with this. This is awful. That's the language. It's so vivid. And so you get this idea that, that, of, that you see God in heaven in his holiness, but in his patience. And that he much rather shows mercy than judgment. I'm so glad about that. God, God much prefers to show mercy. The display of God's mercy brings him more glory than the display of his judgment. The display of his judgment brings him glory because it shows that he's just. But the display of his mercy is the most wonderful thing where you think, look, he's, he's triumphed over his own judgment with his mercy. Oh, thank you, Lord. 
These are the themes we're dealing with here. It's a very different kind of understanding from the day-to-day things we're often used to living in the secular West. These are concepts that are increasingly so far away, people don't even begin to know what to do with it. It's so important that the Bible says that we are not squeezed into the shape of this age, but that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we realize actually what reality is and how it works. Now, by the time we get to Zedekiah, just to sort of give you a bit of a sense of context, by this point, Judah is a vassal state of Babylon, which means this, is that there's already been a number of invasions by Babylon, and essentially, um, Judah has had to capitulate its sovereignty, really. They're allowed to officially exist as a nation, but it's the king of Babylon who decides who the king is, and basically, it's they have to pay tribute. It's that whole idea. They're, 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 they're allowed to exist, but at any moment, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon could just squash them. Okay, so they've lost their glory. The, the days of David and Solomon are a distant memory. They're a vassal state. That's what that means. And King Zedekiah is put in place. So let's go um, to Chronicles 36. Uh, we're going to read um, verses 11 to 14. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He didn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. Now let's just turn. Sorry, slides. <laughs> Missed miss slides. I'm really sorry about this. this is gonna, we're going to mess around a bit here. But let's go to Jeremiah 32 quickly. So he didn't listen to Jeremiah. Let's just see the first five verses of Jeremiah 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah the prophet, saying to him, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye, and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So Jeremiah is prophesying to his own king, um, defeat, and uh, game over, time is up, Um, this is is what's going to happen, there's no point fighting against Babylon anymore. So he imprisons Jeremiah because he doesn't want to listen to the prophetic because it's not what he wants to hear. Sorry, back to 2 Chronicles 36. He didn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. So he'd had this, this... negotiation with Nebuchadnezzar and I said, yeah, fine, we'll serve you, we'll pay tribute. And then when Nebuchadnezzar went back, he actually carried on doing his own thing. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Help us. Help us, Lord. I pray, I ask you, help us. Help us to be under your word in a really fruitful way. Help us, Lord, to be, in that sense, comfortably laid bare, naked in your sight. Lord, we, we so often spiritually try to clothe ourselves with self-righteousness and ideas that make us feel better. Thank you, Lord, that, that, is, that we don't need to do that. 
you have offered to clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. But it, it, it involves us being willing to be laid bare and to do away with our own robes. They're not good enough. We lay them to one side. When we do good works to try and make ourselves right before you or show how spiritual we are, you describe them as filthy rags. We lay them to one side. And I pray, Lord, that as we're laid bare, we would, we would come face to face with mercy and not judgment. We would come face to face with the high priest who, does, who knows what it is to be tempted in every way. Who understands, who is touched by our weakness. Thank you, Jesus. You're touched by our weakness. And we are weak. We are weak. And so I pray that you would strengthen us through your word. And you would clothe us, give us a fresh sense of what it is to be clothed in the very robes of Jesus. Made right with God as a gift. That this gospel would wash over our souls again. And we would be strengthened in it, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Zedekiah silences the prophetic voice. Essentially buries his head in the sand. What happens to him? Well, he gets taken off. If you read the account in Kings, you'll find out that his sons are slaughtered before his eyes. Because back then, your son would be the next king. And so it's a way of saying your, your inheritance is cut off. And they plucked his eyes out. He'd been blind all along. Because the word of God was coming to him. He had the word of God clearly in scripture about all these different idolatries and he just ignored it, didn't see it, chose not to see it. I don't know. The prophetic word comes, won't listen, stiffened his neck, buried it in the sand. Judgment comes. It's an awful story, terrible, terrible things. It's a bloody age. Why didn't he listen? Well, if we, go, if we go somewhere else in Jeremiah, if we go to Jeremiah chapter 7 just quickly, that's quite, it's quite an interesting little thing that Jeremiah prophesies earlier in his ministry. And he, he picks out something that you, know, you just feel like, ah, I could, I could very much imagine Zedekiah really doing exactly this. He says, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. Don't trust in these deceptive words. Here are the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Okay. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? Then he goes on. He says, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you don't oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you don't go after other gods to your own harm, I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your father's. Forever. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. So what they were doing was they were going, it's the temple of the Lord. Now, obviously, when the temple had been built, there were these great things that God had spoke about it, great intentions of, in the heart of God. It would be a house of prayer for the nations. All this amazing thing. But they, what had happened was, it, in, in, in the minds of the people, they'd kind of emptied out all of the substance of God's ways, God's character, righteousness, justice, just scooped that all out of that. And so they just left with this empty shell, the temple, and then they'd kind of stood in it as a kind of refuge. We can do what we like. Why? Because the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God is going, 
These are deceptive words. What you've done is you've pulled the heart out of what this was all about. And it's become a religious superstition. It's a bit like people who wear a cross and think that somehow, somehow there's going to be some sort of protection. If you want to wear a cross, that's fine. Please don't make it your refuge. Why would you want that to be your refuge when the Lord your God could be your refuge? It's a completely different thing. I'm not saying you can't have the Lord your God your refuge and wear a cross. Please hear what I'm saying. But when, when you put some kind of thing in there or things like that, God's looking on going, what are you doing? You don't need to do that. Things can easily come in and you find a kind of refuge in them and there's no, you don't need to. He took refuge in There's a sense of, well, this, we're the people of Israel. We're God's chosen. And God's going, well, if you're my chosen, then there's a kind of certain responsibility upon you. <laughs> you, can't, you can't then just live how you please and then use that as a refuge. You see, it's a, it's, it's a, there's, there's this dynamic. Now, what I want to really spend the rest of this sermon doing is asking quite a provocative question. Because actually, our whole confidence is built on the perfections of another. Right? So if you've got true gospel confidence, if you're truly a Christian, your whole foundation is based on the righteous life, the awful death, the glorious resurrection of someone else. And it's not you. Of Jesus. Your entire confidence is built on that. And I want to ask the question, how do we do that in a way that isn't like Zedekiah in the temple? Where you go, Jesus, Jesus. But really you're doing what you like. Because Jesus is the true temple. The temple was just a type. Jesus is the true temple, which is why Jesus had destroyed this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He is the temple. He's the fulfillment of temple imagery. And so how do we make sure, how does this, how does it work as Christians? And I want to talk you through, I want to take you through a few verses in Romans just to explain how this works so that we don't become Zedekiahs. Look at your neighbor and tell them, don't become a Zedekiah. Romans 5, Romans 5 verse 20 gives us this most extraordinary scripture which says this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Or where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Where the worse things become in a situation in someone's life, the more grace God gives to sort it out. What a wonderful thing. Can we just, can we just stop for a minute on that? Because actually... A lot of people, especially if you was brought up in church, have never grasped this. A lot of people go to church week on week. They're part of church Christian life. They know something of the gospel and the grace of God. But if you, when you get to the foundations, it's grace mixed with something else. It's grace mixed with, yes, but I do this and I do that. Listen, that is a false foundation. Right? The Bible says this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The Bible says there's only one foundation you can lay, and that's Jesus Christ. Where your feet are entirely upon him. Where your hope is entirely in him. And sometimes, I have found myself as a Christian sometimes, where I've been feeling really spiritual. I don't know, maybe I had a really great prayer time yesterday. Or even this morning. Maybe God used me in some way. And I find myself feeling kind of really vigorously confident in the presence of God. And I think the Lord's looking on going, no, I don't reckon that. 
That doesn't smell like Jesus. That smells like something else. And there are other times where I'm in the presence of God just about. Just about. And I'm like, I can't even get the words out. It's more of a sigh than a prayer and a sense of, God have, God have mercy. But the, the reason I'm confident to say those words is because I know I'm in Christ. And I think in that moment, the father's going, I know that smell. I know that. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. And it's a bit like when Jesus told the parable of the, you know, the, 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 the tax collector and the, uh, and the Pharisee and the Pharisees. I thank you that I pray and I fast and this sort of stuff. And the other one's beating his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one went away justified, Jesus said? This one. If your understanding of the gospel does not lead you to, Roman, to asking the question of Romans chapter 6, verse 1, I want to put before you, you've not yet fully understood the gospel. Romans 6, verse 1 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If, if that is not where your understanding of the gospel takes you, I want to question your understanding of the gospel. That's where it should go. You should at least at some point ask that question. Hold on a minute. Are you telling me that the more sin there is, the more grace God gives? And I like grace. And I want more grace. Hmm. So maybe if I sin more, I'll experience more grace. Let me put it to you. If you ask that question, you've understood the gospel. You've, well done. Well done, you've actually heard it. You actually get it. You heard what was preached. If when you hear, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, you immediately jump to, yes, but we must make sure that we don't do this, and we mustn't do that, and we must make sure that we do that. Whoa, hold on a minute. Enjoy the gospel. Enjoy the gospel. That's the foundation. So many Christians lack joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. So many Christians lack strength. Why? Because they lack joy. Why? Because they don't get grace. They don't get grace. So busy trying to live righteously and please God. And, and, and it comes out of a new heart. This is, the, this is a new what you've got to pick. It comes out of a new heart. You've probably been genuinely born again, otherwise you wouldn't want to care about pleasing God. But the foundation's mixed. You've not just stopped. And nakedly sat, not even knelt, because that's a bit too, oh, I'm kneeling, right? Sat, maybe even sun lounged, spiritually naked in the presence of God with nothing to give. Undone, aware that all of the ugliness is completely seen. The pride, the lust, the self-obsession, the bitterness, the cowardice, it's all, there. it's all out there. It's all out there. And you have one word on your lips, and that word is Jesus. And God declares you righteous. God declares you righteous. To such an extent that no matter what amazing things you do for the rest of your Christian life, you'll never be more righteous than in that moment. Because when God declares you righteous, you're righteous. It's not righteous, but... It's the gospel. And you turn away 
from all other confidences and say, Jesus, I have, I've really, it's not just that I've sinned, it's my very makeup, it's covered in it. My, my very constitution is just covered in it. And it's awful. Please forgive me. Please have mercy on me. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. You think, how can God do that? The cross. The cross. He who knew no sin became sin. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of that ugliness, all of that pride, all of that laid on him. He willingly bore our sins in his body, took it in himself out of love. This is the love of the Father, the love of the Son. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Holy Spirit, working salvation for us. This is what God has done. You say, why? Love. God is under no obligation to do this. He does it out of love. This is the love of God, reaching in. And, and, and dealing with all of the problems, all of the barriers between you and him. And completely declaring you righteous in Christ. Before anyone who will hear it, particularly the accuser. This is good news, folks. This is beautiful. And then you might say, but how, how do I make sure that I can enjoy that and not be a Zedekiah, not, not pretend? Well, here's, it goes on. Shall we continue sin that grace may abound? By no means. Here's the answer. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When you come to Jesus like that, a miracle happens called regeneration. You're born again. As Rich so wonderfully unpacked earlier, you're given a brand new heart. Okay, You've, You've died to the rule of sin. You've come out of the kind of economy of sin and all of that and, and, and law and trying to get yourself right enough for God and you are brought into the economy of grace with a brand new heart and so this you're, you're a new you're not who you were you've died to sin and so again so many Christians don't get this what they do is they look at their attitudes they look at the things that aren't right and perfect and they just go man alive you know God dear God must be really angry with me whatever right that's the wrong starting point the, ro- the right starting point is this I have died with Jesus on the cross Right? It wasn't just him who died. That I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I've been buried with Christ through baptism into death. Buried. Dead and buried. And then raised into, I, raised into newness of life with him. I am not who I was. I'm dead to sin. So sin may tell me to jump and I still live within dwelling sin. I still have temptations to sin. Of course I do. But I know who I am in Jesus. And therefore I don't need to yield to the authority of sin in my life. And we all stumble in many ways and we make mistakes. But we get up quickly and and we keep short accounts with God. And our heads don't go down. Why? Because we know we've been made brand new in Jesus. And we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know that if God justified me when I was in that state, of course he's going to see things through to glory. Amen? If I came to him utterly corrupt and his response was mercy and salvation, of course he's going to walk with me right through and bring me to glory. He is faithful to his plan and to his people. Amen? And so, brothers and sisters, be assured. 
Be assured, if you have come to know Jesus Christ, if you've been given that brand new heart, there is at the very core of you a heart that beats for Jesus, for righteousness, for purity. That's the deepest thing about you. Underneath that, there's not the, oh, the real core of sin and corruption. It's the other way. At the core is a brand new heart that beats for Christ. In our bodies, we still have all sorts of struggles and evil desires. We know all of that. But hallelujah, at our center, a miracle has happened. Resurrection has begun. And we become newer and newer every day on the inside, the Bible says. While our outer man perishes, decays, and our inner man becomes renewed day by day. Until finally our outer man comes into resurrection as well. Hallelujah. I want you to hear the gospel again today. I want you to... I want you to feel that sense of relief. I want, you, I want you to know if you're in Christ. We'll end with this story, Bible story. Many of you will know it. You've got Isaac and Rebekah. They've got twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's a bad egg. Horrible. Chosen by God. Esau's much a decent fella. Okay. Grace. We don't like this. Some of you go, we don't like this. It's grace. Esau's the oldest son. So he's, his is the inheritance, the blessing in that setup. And he's also his father's favorite because his father likes the soup he makes when he goes out hunting. Very deep man, Isaac. Uh, um, the way to a man's heart is... Yeah, there we go. Uh, Jacob's, I don't know what he does, uh, sits indoors making candles or something. It's very different, okay? They're very different, very different characters. Jacob is Rebecca's favourite. She goes, and she knows he's been chosen, my God, he's going to get the blessing. So when she hears the dad ask Esau to go out, sort of dying wish, go and kill some, dying wish, want some of that soup. It's great, isn't it? Go out and hunt the thing. I need some of that soup now. She hears that. She's like, right. She cooks a soup up. She gets Jacob in. She clothes him. She clothes him in Esau's, in, 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 in Esau's hairy garments. He's a hairy guy, unlike Jacob. And uh, you know, the, smell of, the smell of Esau. And then she, right, you take the soup in. So the dad's blind. So he takes the soup in. Brought your, brought your soup for you. I said, like, that was quick. Like, yeah, no, yeah. You know, I mean, this is bad. This is really this cry. Yeah, the Lord really blessed me and found an animal. You know. He's like, what? it's the voice of Jacob. Come close. So he comes close. And as he comes close, the father smells. Who does, who does the father smell? Jacob's hidden in Esau. And the father blesses. That's the gospel. But without any deception. Hallelujah. So when I have to be, I've got some of you are waiting to be found out. Or I've just touched something there. Some of you are waiting to be found out. If you are sincerely in Christ, what I mean by that is, is that you have put your trust in him. And you are clinging on to him for your righteousness. Okay? You're not going to be found out. You're going to be covered. That's the, God, that's the heart of God and be covered. Right? But you're hidden in Christ. So when you come near to the Father, he goes, oh. And he speaks blessing. 
which is why the Bible says that we, we, have, we receive every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. You're hidden in him. So by the Bible says we are the aroma of Christ to God. That's what it says, to God. And then to others, to some we smell of life, to others we smell of death. But to, to God, he smells Christ. Why? He's clothed. God arranged this whole thing in the gospel. This is the love of God, the grace of God. This is how God deals with his holiness, preserving his holiness, dealing with sin, but being able to receive sinners. This is the mercy of God. This is why we gather. This is why we willingly learn how to pick up our cross and die to ourselves daily. We've seen something bigger. We've seen something better. We want others to know. We want others to know this eternal life that we are already in. We want others to know this joy, this forgiveness. It's why we do what we do. It's why, why we are. It's what, it's what we're about as a church. We want others to know, don't we? I'm going to just, I'm going to end them just in prayer. I'm going to pray that if you, if you just know your foundation's mixed, as I pray, just say to the Lord, I, I want my foundation to be Jesus alone. I'm going to stop clinging to self-righteousness, my own little things. Listen, you add anything to Jesus, you've taken away from the situation. Don't do it. He's complete. You add to him, you mess it up. Don't. Come to the Father on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. Some of you may be your churchgoers, but you're not born again. You've never even heard this. This is new to you. Listen, the price for your sin has been paid. Leave it at the cross. Cling to Jesus with your whole heart. Call on his name. Turn away from all the stuff that's not about him. Just turn to him wholeheartedly. He will save you. You will know it. You're, you're new. You're born. You'll know it. You think, I'm, something's happened. I'm changed. New desires. New longings. The, the, the world's no longer black and white. It's in colour. You'll know it. The Spirit of God come and dwell in you.